Podcastle, episode 347, for January 21st, 2014, Flash Fiction Extravaganza, Great Powers, Greater Responsibilities, rated R, contains violence. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle True Believers. I'm your host and co-editor Dave Thompson. This week, strap on your cape and cowl because we're all going to become superheroes. Superheroes are everywhere today and as a longtime comic book fan, I'm not complaining. Not a wink. I remember being a kid in elementary and junior high when my reading superhero comics was considered lame by so many of my peers. Today, superheroes in fiction aren't an incredibly new thing either. You can go back and see George R.R. R. Martin's incredibly popular wildcard anthologies. Our friend Mer Lafferty, who you'll hear soon, had some success with one of my favorite superhero books, Playing for Keeps. And now, no less than Brandon Sanderson is writing an epic story about a boy trying to take down a supervillain with his Steelheart series. Good times. Now, there's no shortage of superheroics in our culture. TV, movies video games. Oddly, we haven't run a ton of superhero fiction here at Podcastle, though. I guess to some degree that's because superheroes are usually interpreted in such a visual medium these days. We have to wonder how we can use the power of prose and audio to make it a unique experience. Not that we don't have any big epic smackdowns or splash pages in this episode, Oh, no. We do, for believers, we do. But generally, we decided to look for stories that did something a little bit different with superheroes. Our title riffs from that ever-popular Stan Lee quote, With great power there must also come great responsibility, as Uncle Ben once fatefully told Peter Parker. Sometimes, we're not such good listeners, are we, Uncle Ben? We're flawed, and we're doomed to learn things the hard way. Our first story is a story about a group of superheroes that's kind of the antithesis of team-up stories. We're proud to present The Sea City Six, Where Are They Now?, by Jen Reese, originally published in the all-too-briefly-resurrected Flytrap magazine. Jen is the author of science fiction and fantasy adventure stories for readers of all ages. She's published four novels, Jade Tiger, A Kung Fu Adventure for Adults, and Above World a science fiction trilogy for kids. You can find her at www.jenreese.com. Our reader this week is one of my favorite superheroes, the mighty, mighty Mer Lafferty, editor of Escape Artist's upcoming Mothership magazine and author of the superhero novel Playing for Keeps, The Fantastical Traveling Guides, The Shambling Guide to New York City, and The Ghost Train to New Orleans, as well as the I Should Be Writing podcast. You can find her online at Merverse.com. Of this story, Jin said, I got the idea after spending all day watching the news reports about a national tragedy. It got me to thinking about the different ways we cope with horrific events in this era of 24-hour news cycles and endless internet access. So, grab a pen, notepad, and camera, take some pictures of J. Jonah Jameson if you get a chance, and enjoy the story. The Sea City Six. Where are they now? By Jen Reese. Ice flow. 
we find Florence Collins in the most unlikely of places, a dive bar called Tycho's Haunt on the edge of Sea City's factory district. Gone is her silver spandex, shimmering like frost, her white leather boots and gloves, the blue crystal necklace nestled in the hollow of her neck. She stands behind the bar slinging drinks, a dark flannel shirt hanging loosely over a stained black t-shirt, her jeans held up with a wide leather belt and a massive Sea City Stags belt buckle. We make sure to get some close-ups. Nothing to say to you, she grumbles after we tell her about this project. Watch the broadcast if you're that obsessed with tragedy. We've already done that, of course. We have most of them memorized. Ice Flo used to chuckle and grin and make puns with the word hot. Now she growls and grunts at the bar's patrons and curses them out when they forget to tip. Her hair, once white and sleek and imitated in every hair salon in Sea City, is now dyed a musky brown. Limp, dry, and unassuming. It has no memory of its former glory. Maybe she loosens up some nights, starts talking. We start to interview some regulars and the bar grows cold. We've worn layers, not sure how this would go, but the chill seeps into our bones. Go, Florence says and when she lifts her arm to throw a frozen bottle of beer, we see it across her abdomen, under the ragged hem of her shirt, the scar. Peregrine. Kyle Coe is easy to find at his law office. He's gone back to life as a trial attorney, a career he excelled at before his run-in with an escaped mutant falcon. We stand in the waiting room with his assistant, Jeremy, while Kyle finishes with a client. He won't argue any cases in front of a jury now, not since the Main Street debacle. Everyone knows him. Everyone has an opinion about what he did or didn't do. They only agree that he should have done something different. His eyes scan us as we enter. He sees how fast our hearts are beating, if any of us are sick, what we ate that morning for breakfast based on the stains on our shirts. And yet, he missed all the important signs during the debacle. He didn't spot Trigger until it was too late. He never even knew there was a bomb. Our meeting is thorough but dull. He knows how to answer questions in a way that tells us nothing about him. After everything he's been through, we're simple and easy to manipulate. Only when we begin to pack up our equipment and leave does a glimmer of the old Kyle Coe shine through. Are you going to see Miguel next? Kyle asks. It's his birthday tomorrow. Tell him happy birthday for me. Mercury. There was a time when Kyle Coe and Miguel Gonzalez were inseparable. Peregrine's eyes, Mercury's flight and speed. They were always scouting ahead, always calling the scene for the others. The mayor of Sea City herself officiated their wedding. Now Miguel runs a homeless shelter in Sea City's version of Skid Row. He's a big man. The muscles in his shoulders and back are softening into gentler curves. Dark scruff covers his neck and cheeks in uneven splotches. He's 36 today, but looks closer to 50, his curly dark hair already tufting white at his temples. Captain Catalyst made him a new eye and a shiny new arm to replace the ones he lost in the debacle, but Captain Cat never figured out how to give Miguel what he loved most, what he loved even more than he loved Kyle Coe, the ability to jump into the sky and keep going. You folks need a bed for the night? We're full up, but I'll see what I can do. Miguel laughs at his joke and clasps our arms and tells us to sit, sit, sit. We do. It's hard not to look at his new eye, but we keep it professional. 
He's happy to replay the events leading up to the debacle, but it's the same story told in the same way, as if the tale dug grooves in his brain and now he can't slip even a syllable out of line. Does he miss being able to fly? About as much as I'd miss being able to breathe, Miguel says. But those not gifted with power can still be super. He motions to the shelter, slowly filling up for the night. It's the same slogan on all of his charity campaigns. That and everyone has super inside them. We wish him a happy birthday for Kyle, and his smile wavers but doesn't break. Stay safe out there, he says. Candor. In the graveyard, fresh flowers mound over the bodies of the Main Street victims. Jace Henderson's marker, simple white stone with elegant chiseled lettering, is free of all such displays. People say they love the truth, but they rarely love the truth-tellers. We pop the lid off a pizza and eat it in the grass, rescuing gray mushrooms from the gooey, still-warm cheese. Jace hated mushrooms, and no one rescued him. Captain Catalyst We find the captain deep in the heart of her personal research facility, five curved computer screens surrounding her like a shield. She points to a different monitor with each phrase. Mercury's power recovery, inoculation against triggers regeneration. He's dead, but who knows for how long. Power boost serum, time travel possibilities. I want a second chance. She was a brilliant game developer once, and maybe it gave her the wrong idea, that you could try the same battle over and over until you figured out how to beat it. Cat looks at us, her black hair now shaved to a crew cut, her black skin sallow from lack of sleep. She has a scar on her cheek, but it's small. Too small. She would have traded for Miguel's injuries in a heartbeat. She nods to the last monitor. And of course, you already know about my highest priority project. She turns the screen toward us, but we turn the cameras off. We look away. Shatter. You're doing well, Kat says. She counts us quickly. Only a few more shards today. Not many people could sustain such a mental and physical fragmentation. It bodes well. We change the subject. Ask her about the debacle again. Distract her with questions about her other research. This we record. We want to hear everything again. Where we all were. What we all did. Where we went wrong. Again. 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 If we hear it enough, maybe the fragments will start to make sense. Maybe we'll find a way to be whole. And welcome back. Not only is this the antithesis of team-up stories, but it also feels like the inversion of the origin story. As far as I know, this is the only story featuring the Sea City Six. And in addition to the sheer economy of words Jen uses here, I love the way it takes a retrospective view of what they were, as well as where are they now. And that's all we know about them. Our next story is hands down the most twisted of the bunch, and yes, I'm positively gleeful about that. A popular aspect of superhero comics is when two or more superheroes collide and duke things out. Our next story takes that concept and plays it to the hilt. We're very proud to present The Colors by John M. Shade, originally published in Daily Science Fiction. John M. Shade is a graduate of the Viable Paradise 15 workshop and has had work appear in Daily Science Fiction and Everyday Weirdness. 
He's currently working on his MFA in the Stone Coast program at the University of Southern Maine. You can follow him on Twitter at Dystopian Dream. Sean D. Sorrentino is your narrator for this outing. He lives with his wife and his dog in the Raleigh, North Carolina area. And he recently read Rachel K. Jones' Nine Lived Wonder over at the Drabblecast, so yeah, I like him already, although he's a bit more sleazy this time out, if you ask me. So, grab a seat under the big top, get some cotton candy for the main event. Remember that teamwork doesn't happen here that often. Enjoy the story. The Colors by John M. Shade The trucks roll into town like a fog, muted colors and brands dotting their sides like worn heraldry. Soon the spikes are down and Slugoth is pouring the sand. Rhyme lifts the tents with cool arctic winds from his fingertips. Panoply's clones hammer nails and put up boards, and everything starts to look familiar again. In the main tent, around the sand and dirt floor of the arena, a wooden wall is erected eight feet tall. The worn, angled seating rises from there. A makeshift gate sits on the side where the opponents emerge, and another across from it where I emerge. Real boulders dot the floor for cover, or weapons, or both. Everything is wood or stone, nothing metal. I've had plenty of enough experience with magnetic controllers to know that a little fire ain't so bad, Mother Circus would say. I sit waiting in a covered trailer during the day, far removed from the rest. It has benches and a dirty mirror, and is filled to the ankles with stale pallet water, a necessity when Red Octopus had been here. Once, the trailer had been filled with all different kinds of costumes, each of us boasting our colors to the other. Kid Shambler, Falcon Low, Halcyon, Mimetic Lad, Jack Lantern, Red Octopus, Tiara too. I remember them all, but I could always see her the clearest. In the children's games, we would always play in our costumes, capes fluttering at our backs, parents keeping a safe distance on the lawns watching clothes. Tiara would always volunteer to be the damsel. No one knew why. Tied up and hanging over vats of plastic lava or acid, she would whisper to me, You can save me this time. You really can. I never could. I've got another hero for you. Mother Circus says, as they are making the last preparations for the show. She looms over me in the trailer, having to stoop for the low ceiling. The stitching across her face has come undone again. The frayed edges at the corners of her mouth crinkle loudly when she grins. You'll be wearing these tonight. She throws me a costume and I turn it over in my hands. Cowl, cape, red and gray. So common, I think. She says, Shape it however you want, I don't care. Where did you find him, I ask. Her, Mother Circus corrects. I raise an eyebrow. Rare, I say. The women in the masks were the first to go. Yeah, she says. Is she trained, I say. Put up quite a fight when we took her. I wait. You'll be meeting her soon enough, Mother Circus says and motions with her hands as she's wiping muck from her shirt. Hasn't been clean yet, though. I try not to imagine all the methods they use to get her to say yes. No one agrees with this without convincing. No one except me, it seems. 
I hear the stitches crinkle again as Mother Circus strolls away, back down the steps, the wood protesting her girth as she goes. I meet the new hero in the waiting area behind the large arena gate. Slugoth comes and fetches me when the preliminaries are done and leads me through a series of tented corridors, all white and gray and stained with dried blood, connected to the waiting area. Small and lithe, she has egg-white hair and an absent gaze. More a dancer than a hero, I think. Sand from the arena trickles lazily into mix with the mud around our feet. We stand listening to the crowd call for combat. Above our heads they stomp and pound, some with masks and some without. They come to watch something precious and rare, just before it's gone again. It's never fun to watch the villains fight. The woman superhero turns, looking me over, her sidekick. Her mask is red like mine, but with faded gray edges and sparkling blue eyes underneath. She says, My name is Jessie. My real name, you know. There's fear in her eyes. A forced smile. You're not going to last, I tell her. They're going to come for me, she says. I shake my head. I know, she says. She gives a smile and for a moment it makes me think of Tiara. I know, she says again to herself. The crowd's chant grows louder and louder and louder still. The gates open and everything is blood and light again. We travel away on cracked roads and dirt paths out of towns avoiding the crumbling cities. When a truck blows a tire or the engine starts to smoke, Slugoth carries it the rest of the way, hunched over, grunting with each step. Sometimes rhyme helps, or killjoy, or panoply when they're bored, but not usually. Teamwork doesn't happen often here. When we stop each night, the doors are unlatched and I'm allowed to roam free. The hero is left to heal in her trailer. I sleep under the stars, on grassy hillocks, amongst ruined headquarters, or the rooftops of abandoned robot factories, and try my best not to dream of Tiara. Some nights I dream of other things. Plots foiled. The feeling of being surrounded and still confident. It has been so long. But mostly it is the same dream, over and over. The seconds before T.R. leaves are etched into me. An index finger pressed to dry, cut lips. Her eyes wide with, what was it? Possibility? Weakness? Danger? I'm never sure. She turns to go and I'm sitting up in my bunk, frozen. I can do nothing. I sit there as she walks out and away, hesitating into forever. The months turn cold one by one, and the heroes, Jesse's, wounds grow in increments. They are always hardest on the heroes. An old habit, I think. We train in the morning, breath trailing against the cool light. She begins to learn the tricks. Rhymes, blind spots, Slugoth's stomp, Panoply's clones. She makes few mistakes, but they cost her. One wrong step could be the end of you here. It is only a matter of time. But she wins the majority of her bouts. She even managed to knock Slugoth out in one punch. The crowd had fallen silent at that. And then the cheer that went up afterwards gave us both the energy to last. Sometimes they want the heroes to win, too 
if only for a moment. You could lose yourself in it if you weren't careful. I start to see the posters up along the border posts and town halls. Jessie's picture is in front, poorly drawn, with me off center from her and the rest of the crew looming behind us. The crew takes a copy, laughing at their poses over the dinner slop. There are other posters on the walls, some with colors I recognize, some without. We hang lights on a tree for winter. They flash green and yellow and purple. We count down the seconds until a new year on the wind-worn clock. There's a bonfire in the center, the trucks coiling around it defensively like snakes. Jesse finds me amidst the cheering and clapping and kisses me. For a small moment, the crowd around me does not matter anymore. I remember the heroes that went before Tiara, before she was called up. An endless streak trailing back behind us. I can recall Tiara's face when Mother Circus handed her the new costume, too. Joy and horror combined. It was what she had always dreamed. Flared gloves and boots, a gold half-mask, and a new crisp symbol across the chest. I remember it new. And then the cuts and tears, the colors worn and raw, stitched to the side of the trucks now amongst the rest. Jessie lays beside me in my trailer, her form outlined beneath the covers of the spare moonlight. I'm going to run, she says. Are you sure, I say? She has cuts on her arms where Rhyme's ice javelins had glanced by, bruises on her neck at Slugoth's grapple. She hides them well, but I can see them now. She is sure. Are you going to come, she says. No, you won't. It'll be worse than here. You don't know what's out there. There are better places. We can fight. I motion outside the window. Look what happens when we fight. She turns on her side away from me. I'm not going to last, she whispers. Just wait another day, I say. You'll feel better tomorrow. I try not to notice as she packs up her things. They find her a week later in a small winter town near the city and drag her back the headhunter sneering as they drop her at Mother Circus's feet. She pulls her up by the hair, exposing the bloodied face and says, You've got a lot of nerve, the hospitality I've put up for you. Mother Circus laughs, the stitches across her body a cacophony as she shakes. Take her away, she says. The trucks roll into town, the colors of the dead across their sides. The sun goes down and the stage is set, the sand poured. The crowd files in shoulder to shoulder, handing away their bartered goods for the small printed tickets. They chant softly at first, then growing into crescendo like breaking waves. I stand behind the arena gate waiting. I can see her, tied up and hanging through the bars. The spotlights have swung down to me and the familiar white light floods in. I bring up my arm to shield my eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, Mother Circus booms. She stands on a small parapet above the opposite gates, motioning to the full seats. Are you prepared for a night to remember? Very few get a chance to witness such a death. She points to Jessie in the full vat below her, tendrils of smoke rising up around her like fingers. 
The weapons on the racks behind me shake and titter from the booming replies of the crowd. The entire arena trembles under the weight. Mother Circus looks directly at me and only me. It's time for the main contest. She throws her arms wide. Welcome! The gates open and I am running forward again. The goons come first, always first. Five, seven of them, two or three at a time, chains and pipes and knives in their hands. I slide between two, crushing their heads together. I crack one's ribs and the other's cheek against my fist. They know I mean business. But I keep running. The others come now, rhyme his uneven grin, slug off making sure not to hurt me, panoply's raucous laughter. I dodge an ice javelin and roll into a run again. I plant a hand on Slugoth's shoulder and use him for cover for the instant it takes him to get angry. Projectiles hit him in the chest by the dozen, bouncing off, and he charges the others, bodies diving out of the way of his line. Teamwork doesn't happen here often. The stage comes on fast and I feel a second wind breathe into me. The crowd's cheers are mixed with hate and joy, anticipation and rejection all around me. Months upon months of running for my life, training days and obstacle courses under heavy suns. Countless in number. I can remember the faces of the teams I led. The towers and the gadgets and the enemies. The big screen TVs, the communicators, the friendships and the romances, so innocent and new. I hurdle the fence around the stage and step up. Jesse's eyes follow me. The crowd chants louder. The growling voices hit like tribal drums. Shadows dance behind me. The other's trying to close the distance now. Too late, though. The infighting bought all the time I needed. Acid thrums through the blood in my legs and arms. I taste the sweat on my mask and the stale air across my tongue. I jump. Mother Circus is already turning to run. I land on her, hearing the bones crunch down. The crowd climbs over top one another trying to get away, villains of all colors running scared. The others come upon me soon, but far too late. My work is already done. Mother Circus's blood has already begun to stain my costume. I look past the others and see that Jessie has already freed herself. I watch them pass her by. They don't even care, and she never looks back. They are arrayed before me on the landing. Slugoth, Panoply, Rhyme, and the others. And the games are over. Both sides settle in the way it was meant to be. Old habits die hard. It's like breathing for us. The odds are stacked impossible, and the villains have murder in their eyes. And everything starts to look familiar again. I remember Tiara's face in the crowd that one night so long ago. No mask, no costume, her real face. The show was nearing its end, the lights burning down, and it was a warm, starless night. I told myself that it wasn't her a thousand times since then, but I think I knew. She was dressed in a dusty jacket and had a baby in her arms, standing next to a cheering man in a spiked costume three rows up looking down on me. She never took her eyes off me. I suppose I understand now. I worked a day shift at the security hut, defending the village from the remnant killbots and other dangers. Jesse cooks communal dinners once a week for the other families. But in our home, 
Amidst the long secret nights, we hang the colors of the dead above our children's cribs and tell stories by candlelight of an age gone by, sure that it will come again. And welcome back. I love the mythic feel of this one, of old heroes long dead, hanging old costumes up over cribs like dream catchers. There's just something so delicious in that that delights me, and how it reflects some of our darker desires with superheroes too. How we can cheer for the violence and bloodlust or berserker rages. How we can make a phone call to vote on Jason Todd's survival or death. We're looking in, waiting to see a hero we love or hate die, because only then we've convinced ourselves will the story have some real gravity. Unless, of course, we're talking about Jean Grey, who's died more times than I can count, the death of Superman, the death of Bruce Wayne, the death of Captain America, pretty much the majority of superheroes we've made a big deal out of their deaths. I always hated how killing a hero was a sure way to drive up the sales. Despite how much twisted fun this one is, I did appreciate how slightly uncomfortable the violence was, and I dig it when stories can do that to me. Also, I think Mother Circus just won the award for Best New Terrifying Supervillain. Well, thus far into the show, we've really gone dark and brooding, so unless you think we're getting a little too 90s image gritty, we're going to close with something a little more hopeful. Maybe. Podcastle's proud to present So You've Decided to Adopt a Zeptonian Baby by David Steffen. David Steffen is a software engineer living with his family in Minnesota. The publication of this story marks his completion of the escape artist's trifecta, a long-held goal of his. When he grows up, he wants to do all the things, and when he's not writing fiction, you can find him reviewing podcasts and soon running other people's fiction at Diabolical Plots. If you're an author, you can also thank David for creating the Submissions Grinder, which tracks your story submissions for you. Our narrator for this one is my friend Rish Outfield, who runs the Doonstief Audio Fiction Magazine with his pal Big Ankelvich. If, like me, you love listening to Rish and his legion of voices narrate stories, you should check out Hunter's Unlucky by Abigail Hilton, another friend of mine. Hunter's Unlucky is an animal story for anyone who loved Richard Adams' Watership Down, Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book, and Jack London's Call of the Wild. I'm also told that Rish will soon have a brand new music album out called Fake Sean Connery, the Taylor Swift covers. Oh yeah. So, keep an eye out for any rocket ships from Krypton with children in indestructible swaddling clothes, and enjoy the story. So You've Decided to Adopt a Zeptonian Baby by David Steffen so you've decided to adopt a Zeptonian baby. Whether you are adopting by chance because you found the smoking crater on your property, or whether you volunteered for the Zeptonian Child Care Service, congratulations and thank you. There is no more rewarding choice you will make in your lifetime. But keep in mind that the number one mistake that adoptive parents of Zeptonians make is thinking too far ahead. There are a lot of years before your little one will be a fully functioning adult to prove that you deserve the $10 million reward. If the new addition to your family is a toddler or older, 
than take a moment to thank your predecessors in turn, who gave the ultimate sacrifice to raise your child, even though everything they gave was ultimately not enough. But don't worry, you're not alone. Why are they here on Earth? No one knows why Zeptonian babies started falling from the sky thirty years ago. It happens in waves, a shower of them hitting the planet every three years. No Zeptonian ships have been found. When can I bring my child to Antarctica? Any honest parent will admit that there are times when they fantasize about throwing in the towel, no matter what benefits and joys they would be giving up. And this is even more true for parents of Zeptonians. When a temper tantrum over an unpurchased candy can level a city block, it's hard to stay the course. But remember that although the Zeptonian staff of the Antarctic Orphanage Facility, the first generation of Zeptonian immigrants all grown up, are superpowered, they are still human, so to speak. They still need sleep, and already they are outnumbered four to one by their charges. Sending a child to Antarctica is a last resort, only used if no adoptive parents can be found for the child. While it's possible that your child may one day move to Antarctica, it will only happen if you have passed away and no other volunteer can be found. So, best to focus on the task in front of you. Baby-proofing Much of the information you'll find in classic baby books doesn't apply when it comes to Zeptonian children. Your baby is not a vulnerable and fragile creature. Remember the smoking crater where your bundle of joy first made landfall? Remember that not only did that little creature survive atmospheric entry and the impact with the ground with nary a bruise, he or she also lived naked in the vacuum of space for months. Nothing in our solar system except the core of the sun itself is going to harm your little guy. You don't need to worry about that. You should, however... Shut off electrical service to your home, in case your little one sticks his fingers in a socket. Imagine a human toddler who has just drunk a can of Mountain Dew. Now imagine that toddler being strong enough to punch through the wall of a bank vault. Now imagine him in your nursery. You get the idea. Emergency. As soon as you possibly can, you should register your child's location with FEMA's Zeptonium Tantrum Division. They will give you a phone number to call when your baby starts to get out of control. This will ensure that you and your neighbors can be evacuated in an expedient manner. Giving your child a time out when he gets worked up is the number one way to teach him a lesson, as well as to prolong your own survival. FEMA will return you to your home free of charge as soon as seismic activity abates so that you can scoop up your little quake maker and wipe away her tears. Implant. The implant at the base of your neck serves two important purposes. First, if you become separated from your child for more than a day, this will allow him to be returned to you. Second, in the event of your tragic death, emergency evacuation of the area will automatically occur, as well as notification of the next adoptive parents. Tampering will only expedite this course of action. Teething. To prepare for teething, you should contact your local scrapyard. Steel girders make the perfect teething toy for a Zeptonian. Do not under any circumstances put your finger in your baby's mouth. 
Your health insurance will not cover medical expenses related to fingers bitten off by Zeptonian children. Teachable Moments Simple statements like, We don't knock down buildings, or A military base is not a playset, will help your child learn the boundaries he will need to get through life. If you don't take every available opportunity to teach, then your child will establish whatever values are convenient to her. This is how child supervillain groups like Gimme Gimme get started. We are fortunate that they were gullible enough to be convinced that the core of the sun was made of candy, or we might be living under their despotic rule even today. Help! If you're feeling like you can't cope with another day with your superpowered dynamo, if you're having trouble keeping up with the little one while wearing numerous splints and casts, if your child is holding a city hostage until you buy him that new gaming system, then it may be time to call for some temporary help from the Super Au Pair Service in Antarctica. For a fee, we'll help you get your child under control and, more importantly, understand why she's acting that way in the first place. It's all worth it. Despite everything that came before, the scariest moment comes at the end of the child's custody with you. Behind the face of the young man or woman, you will always see your sweet baby. You will pray for time to slow, but time will race on unheeding. Your sweet baby will say goodbye and hug you, and then she will lift into the air for the first time. You will experience joy and helplessness commingled as she tests her newfound freedom and then flies off with a whoosh. You can't protect her from the world, and you can't protect the world from her. You've done everything you can now. The rest is up to her. And welcome back. Oh, I gotta agree. Raising a kid with superpowers? Must not be easy. Think about the terrible twos. Well, but this one hits some big emotional points for me. Letting a child who has grown go, letting them metaphorically fly on their own, well, as a parent, it's exhilarating and terrifying. You don't know whether they'll take off or whether they'll crash. Nobody makes their first jump, right? But hopefully they'll learn. Of course, that's true not just of children. But anything you put a lot of love and your life into, and then step back and let it go. About this story, David told us, I've been thinking about baby Superman since my son was born. He's got life pretty easy. He's good looking, he's got a steady job, the love of the masses, the love of his parents, and a steady love interest. The people who've really got it rough were his parents. It's hard enough taking care of a toddler when the toddler can't break your arm. The kids not only managed to raise Clark to be a moral and compassionate being, but they managed to survive the process themselves and somehow keep it all a secret from the general public. Why aren't there any comic books focusing on Mr. and Mrs. Kent with Super Baby Clark? David, I'm just taking a stab in the dark, but I think you're about to get like 50 recommendations of comic books that do feature Mr. and Mrs. Clark. I haven't read them. I can't verify for sure that they're out there, but... Well, welcome to the internet. Okay, 
Let's switch over to feedback. This week for Isabeau S. Wilson's Quartermaster Returns, read by the great Roberto Suarez. This was the weird western in an alternate California, where magic is real and a cavalryman returns from the dead because he owes a debt, and gets involved in a drinking contest. Generally speaking, it seems like it tickled quite a few of your funny bones. Duango said this was a great story, especially the angle on the zombie needing water so badly. I was expecting him to start eating people and was glad he did not. That's something I don't hear every day. The historian angle was interesting as well, as it refutes the existence of water vampires, but there are other monsters in this world, so one fantasy is ridiculous while another is totally acceptable. What a great angle on our own scientific sensibilities and snobberies. Overall, a great and interestingly twisted story, but I'm a sucker for weird westerns. Me too, Dwango, me too. An Infinite Monkey said, I enjoyed the various colorful characters and the fact that the story turned into an extended, disgusting drinking contest. I like the small stakes and the fact that the greater matters lurk in the background and the future for some of these characters. Well, thank you very much for those comments. Step into the closest phone booth you can find and fly over to forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of our show this week. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Your money pays our authors and keeps our show running free. Thank you very much. Well, that was our show for this week. We do hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of all of us here at Podcastle, LaShawn Wanick, Graham Dunlop, Arun Jiwa, Sarah Goldman, Peter Wood, Peter Wood, Peter Wood. It's almost like Beetlejuice. Anna Schwind and myself, Dave Thompson, thanks so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with a Wicked Sea Shanty by Ian Tregellis. Until then, make mine podcastle. We'll see you next time. Excelsior. Hello everyone, Alistair here. A friend of ours needs your help. Greg Campbell is a Navy veteran, published genre writer, Cold Hands, Warm Heart is his, and a single father after the unexpected death of his wife, Pam, just over a year ago. Earlier in the week, a fire destroyed Greg's home. His children and he are fine. They're resilient. But they've lost everything. Their childhood mementos, the photos and keepsakes of Greg's late wife, Pam, family pets. They have the clothes on their back. Their immediate family need to raise enough money to extend and secure permanent housing, basic furniture, linens, personal care items, clothes, school supplies, fuel, and maybe even replace the computer, which had Greg's second, not yet finished book on it too. Greg's unemployed. He makes his living from his writing. That would be hard enough without having to deal with being a recent widower and being a single father, and then the fire on top of that... Listen, no one is more generous than geeks when they put their mind to it. Please, let's help these folks out and give a writer and his family a chance to finally start rebuilding their lives. I'm not going to throw you the link here, but what I will do is put it in the show notes and it will be there until the campaign ends too. Do please give generously if you can. Thanks everyone. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. 
Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from Peter S. Beagle, who wrote, Great heroes need great sorrows and burdens, or half their greatness goes unnoticed. It is all part of the fairy tale. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Our most cherished and long-felt desire. Let the might of your compassion arise to bring a quick end to the flowing stream of the blood and tears.